Our second reading this morning comes from Romans chapter 11. I'm going to read verses 25-30. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers and sisters. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him And to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you are the word of God. You are the redeemer of the world. You were present at the creation. You will welcome us home at the end of time. And we pray this morning that as we dig into your holy scriptures that we might get a fuller sense of you, a closer understanding of you. We pray that we might be more drawn to you and more fully shaped in your image. For you are our hope and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Unsearchable depth, inscrutable mystery, Who has known the mind of the Lord? Four key words and one key phrase from our reading this morning. Listen to them again. Unsearchable, depth, inscrutable, mystery. Who has known the mind of the Lord? This morning we need to talk. We need to talk about divine mystery and human understanding. We need to talk about human understanding and divine mystery. There are lots of different ways that psychologists like to divide up the human race. They tell us that some of us are introverts and others are extroverts. Some are type A personalities and some are type B. Some are right brain thinkers and others are left brain. Lots of different ways of dividing up the human family. 
But I think that we can also divide the human race between those who are attracted to mystery and those who are attracted to understanding. Maybe you can identify which kind of person you are. I definitely fall on the non-mystery side. I am not at all interested in ghosts or spooky things. I don't care about the Bermuda Triangle or the Da Vinci Code. I own 5,000 books and not one of them has a title like The Big Book of Unsolved Mysteries. I just don't care. I do, as you might know, enjoy reading mystery novels, but that's because mystery novels are not really about mysteries. Agatha Christie books really should be called solution novels rather than mystery novels because they're all about discovering the solution. They're all about understanding the puzzle. They're all about getting rid of what seems like a mystery, but which turns out to have a perfectly reasonable explanation. That's the fun of reading a so-called mystery. Because when you get to the end, you go, aha, now that makes sense. Which is the opposite of a mystery. Because a mystery does not make sense. A mystery is mysterious. A mystery defies understanding. Now, I know that some of you sitting here this morning love mystery. You're attracted to mystery. And you're thinking that your pastor is an unimaginative blockhead. I had one date with a girl who thought I was an unimaginative blockhead. It was back in my graduate school days in Manhattan. The two of us were walking down a street in Greenwich Village on a chilly winter's evening, and she began to wax poetical about the billows of steam which were rising up out of the manhole covers as if this were the sighing exultation of some deep and mysterious city. So I explained to her that Con Edison sells steam from its cogeneration plant to 1,700 customers in the city, and some of those steam pipes leak. Somehow that relationship never caught fire. Some people are attracted to mystery, and some people are attracted to understanding. I fall into the latter category, and I think the Apostle Paul does too. He was a theologian. He wasn't a mystic. He was an explainer, not a poet. And so it's interesting in the passage we read this morning to hear Paul strike these notes. Unsearchable depth. Inscrutable mystery. Who has known the mind of the Lord? The Apostle Paul, who is the most rational the most educated, the most intellectual of all of the writers in the New Testament tells us about something which he says is beyond reason. Something which defies the labors of the most educated. Something which exceeds what the intellect can grasp. St. Paul, the master of New Testament understanding, tells us about a mystery. And so this morning we need to talk. We need to talk about understanding and mystery and about mystery and understanding. 
This past week, I was in Florida taking my final class at Reformed Theological Seminary. RTS is definitely a rational, egghead kind of seminary. There's no chanting or incense or labyrinth walking at this school. You won't hear any talk about centering prayer or mindfulness at RTS. They want to talk about systematic theology, about doctrine, about Calvin's Institutes, and about the Westminster Confession of Faith. But on my reading list for this course that I was taking at RTS was the surprising concatenation of books all written by English Puritans with titles like The Gospel Mystery of Sanctification. The Mystery of the Lord's Supper. And the one that I'm going to write on, The Mystery of Providence. And I'm thinking, I didn't come to seminary for things to be mysterious. I came here looking for answers because my people back at Huntington Valley Presbyterian Church expect me to have answers. A little later this afternoon, we will gather for our congregational meeting and you'll hear about the 2019 budget and you'll hear the elders and the staff members plan for the coming year. And if you ask Elder Rich Good, our treasurer, how are we going to pay for all this stuff? And he says, well, that remains a mystery. Or if you ask Susan Clark, our children's ministry director, what Bible stories will our children learn this year? And she says, I have no idea. You might just be a little annoyed. At least if you're like me living on the non-mysterious side of the psychological universe. I like to know. I like to understand. And so it goes against the grain with me to stand before you this morning and proclaim the Word of God. Unsearchable depth, inscrutable mystery. Who has known the mind of the Lord? St. Anselm was the Archbishop of Canterbury in the 11th century. That's a thousand years ago. He was a philosopher and a theologian. He may have been the most educated man in Europe between the time of St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas. And his personal motto was faith seeking understanding. That motto has become a standard definition of theology. Theology is faith seeking understanding. The introduction to theology textbook that I used at Princeton Seminary had that very title, Faith Seeking Understanding. And if I succeed in this sermon, which is not a sure thing, we will all leave here today with a better grasp of the basic difference between the content of our faith which is the unsearchable depth and the inscrutable mystery found in the mind of God and revealed in the pages of Scripture and the formal arrangement of or the order that we give to that faith and content, which is what we call theology, which is the product of human reason and human understanding, faith-seeking understanding. My main task today is to talk about the relationship between the mysterious content of faith, and the rational arrangement or order that human understanding gives to that faith, which we call theology. 
After that, I want to talk briefly about what Paul calls the mystery of Israel's salvation. And then finally, I want to talk about the mystery of our salvation. And then it will be time for the congregational meeting. So let's begin by talking about faith and reason or faith and understanding. Humans discover and know many kinds of truths using their reason and understanding. We send our kids to school for years and years and years to train and to equip their mental faculties. What we teach kids falls into two very different categories. In the first category are concrete facts. They include things like the names of colors, the sounds that farm animals make. Why do we teach kids that? Vocabulary words and spelling lists, historical facts and capitals of states. Children learn those things using their five senses and through memorization. We point to the dog and we say dog and somehow the little brain associates what their eyes have seen with the word dog and then maybe the next time when they see another one of those four-legged creatures, they might say dog. That's one category. The second category of knowledge includes abstract relationships. Things like bigger and smaller, louder and softer, better and worse. They include concepts like parallel and perpendicular, equal and unequal, same and different, holy and evil. In this category are things like pattern and rhythm and similarity and metaphor and analogy. All very abstract, not concrete in the least. And kids miraculously learn both kinds of things. Kids learn the names of colors and the sounds that farm animals make and they learn their state capitals. All very concrete, all dependent on memorization. But they also learn to see and to discover pattern an analogy, and abstract relationships. Last summer, I took my daughter Mia, who was nine years old at that time, to go do a little bit of exploring in a creek bed. We do that every once in a while. We'll pull on our boots and we'll go wading through a creek looking for interesting stones and bits of pottery and animal bones. And as we're driving back from the creek, Mia says to me, Papa, The gravel in the creek is a backwards diary. And I'm thinking, what's this girl talking about? But I do the thing that good fathers do, and I say, can you tell me a little bit more about that? And she says, the top page of the diary is what happened when you first started writing. And the bottom page is the stuff that you just wrote today. But in the creek, the stuff on the top of the gravel just got here today. And when we dig down, we get to the old stuff. A backwards diary. Now that's abstract thinking. And it's delightful to me that kids are able to do that. I'm not sure how they do that. I don't know how they discover pattern and make analogies. But I do know that our minds are wired to do this very thing. One of the most amazing parts of being a parent is watching your child figure things out. Watching the little wheels in their brain spin as they put two and two together. Watching their little minds make connections 
and grasp truths that we haven't explicitly taught them. This is the kind of learning that doesn't happen by memorization. This is the kind of learning that doesn't happen on a worksheet. Our minds are sponges for sense data, for facts, but our minds are also organizing machines that seek to understand and make sense of raw facts. Our minds absorb raw data, so-called facts, but then our minds go to work on those facts by arranging and rearranging the data until it falls into some meaningful or beautiful pattern. Now, faith always begins with certain raw data or certain raw material. We call that raw material revelation. Faith begins with revelation. And then theology applies human reason to that raw material of revelation, seeking to understand that raw data by arranging and rearranging until it falls into some kind of meaningful and beautiful pattern. Theology is faith seeking understanding. Let me give you an example of how the revelation of faith and the understanding of theology fit together. As Christians, we believe in faith that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. And we believe those two facts because that is what was revealed to St. Peter and then confirmed by Jesus himself. Here's what we read in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter, as it turns out, knows something about the identity of Jesus, something that other people around don't know, something that flesh and blood did not reveal to him, flesh and blood being just a fancy way of saying the senses or the unaided intellect. Peter knows that Jesus is both Messiah and that he is the Son of God. And Jesus says that those basic data of the faith, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of God, that those basic data of the faith were not given to Peter through natural means, but that they came to him supernaturally through revelation. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter knew things by revelation from God, and that's faith. Now, Peter doesn't understand rationally or theologically what it means to say that Jesus is the Son of God, but he knows it to be the case. It's a primary data point for him. It's been supernaturally revealed to him. And because it has been revealed to him by God, he can no more doubt that fact than he can doubt that he, Peter, exists. He can't prove either thing, but they are irresistibly clear to him in some primary kind of way. As Christians, you and I receive the teaching of the apostles and we receive it in faith. In the same way, That the identity of Jesus was revealed to Peter, not by flesh and blood, but by his heavenly Father. We Christians also have had revealed to us that Peter's testimony is the God's honest truth. 
even though we can no more prove it than Peter could prove it in his day. After receiving that primary data of the faith through revelation, at some later point, perhaps out of curiosity, perhaps because our natural human penchant for making sense and order of things, we begin to theologize about the basic doctrines of the faith. We begin to think theologically about the revelation, trying to make as much sense of it as we can. Theology is faith seeking understanding. Now please notice that the faith comes first. Faith is the raw data that the human intellect then goes to work on as it seeks understanding. It's not the other way around. It is not that human reason seeks to understand and then once it understands, then we're able to believe. That's not theology. That's called philosophy. Theology begins with belief. Only because the person who has received a revelation cannot not believe what has been revealed. There is no way for Peter to unbelieve that Jesus is the Son of God. Somehow God has revealed that to him, and that's that. There's no going back. The same thing, of course, happens in our day. Christians don't get argued into their faith. It's the other way around. We don't argue to the faith. We argue from the faith. For Christians... The truth of the word of God is as plainly evident to them as the truth of the human senses. A sane Christian would no more seek to prove to you that the Bible is the word of God than he would seek to prove to you that you have a head with two eyes. It's just something he knows. And if you don't know it, well, there's probably nothing that he can do to help you see that. But once a believer has his revelation, then theology, which is faith-seeking understanding, goes to work on what the faith has delivered, trying to make as much sense of the revelation as possible. The Westminster Confession makes this distinction between what the Bible says explicitly, the raw data of revelation, and what we can further conclude from that revelation through the operation of human reason alone, namely through theology rooted in Scripture. This is what Westminster Confession says in chapter 1, paragraph 6. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith and life, is either explicitly set down in the Scriptures... That's the raw data of Revelation. Or, by good and necessary consequences, may be deduced from Scripture. And that's Bible-based theology. So, Jesus is the Son of God. That's a revealed truth that we receive in faith. But, at some point, you have to ask yourself the question, how does that truth square with the other truth that we know about Jesus, namely that he is also the son of Mary. Now we're talking about theology. The early church wrestled to understand how one man, Jesus of Nazareth, could both have a divine nature from his father God and a human nature from his mother Mary and still be one real person. How could Jesus have two natures and not be some schizophrenic monster? The apostles tell us 
that Jesus was both human and divine. That's what we read in the pages of the Bible. But the Bible doesn't explain that mystery. Theology, however, tries. Theology is faith-seeking understanding. After many years of conversation about this, the church's answer to the question of how the two natures of Jesus relate to each other was defined by the Chalcedonian Creed, written in 451, which says, in part, We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess that one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a rational soul and body, of one substance with the Father according to the Godhead, and of one substance with us according to the manhood, and so on. Now notice the opening phrase of the creed, following the Holy Father's. The theologians who wrote the Chalcedonian Creed did not think they were inventing anything new. They were just passing down what they had learned from the apostles. They were just trying to make as much sense as possible of what has been revealed by God and revealed in faith and received in faith. Theology is faith-seeking understanding. So let me talk a little bit about the mystery of Israel's salvation. For a a lot of weeks, we've been working through Romans 9 and 10 and 11, three chapters in which Paul is wrestling theologically with the relationship between Jews and Gentiles in the church. For three chapters, Paul has agonized over the fate of his Jewish brothers and sisters who have rejected Jesus, even though he was the Messiah specifically promised by the Jewish prophets and specifically sent to the Jewish nation for their salvation. Paul wrestles long and hard because these people are near and dear to him. And because there's a conflict going on between Gentiles and Jews in the church that needs to be resolved. And because what he's seeing with his eyes, Jews rejecting Christ, doesn't square with what scriptures had told him would happen. That his people would be redeemed. And so Paul goes back to the basic mystery, to the basic revelation of scripture. In verse 26, he affirms, all Israel will be saved. In verse 28, he affirms, as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. In verse 29, he affirms, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And then in verse 33, Paul bursts out into doxological praise and an affirmation of mystery. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. It's enough just to stop there and to recognize the mystery. I don't know how the salvation of all Israel will happen. But what I do know is that 
It will happen. Because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And all I can say to that is, thanks be to God. Now most of us here this morning are not Jewish, so we need to spend some time talking about ourselves before we leave. The mystery of Israel's salvation is in fact no more mysterious than the mystery of your salvation. Why was an annoying, self-important, God-mocking sinner like me saved? Particularly as I wasn't even born a child of the promise. Why did God in his mercy reveal himself to me so that I could not any more ignore him than I could ignore my hand in front of my face? I don't know the answer to those questions. But what I do know is that God sent his son into the world to seek and to save those who were lost. And I was lost. And Jesus found me and had mercy on me. And he called me and he saved me from myself. Now maybe Jesus is calling you. Maybe you're lost too. In all of your self stuff. But maybe you've heard Jesus calling you. You don't have to understand before you have faith. In fact, you can't understand before you have faith. But you can have faith. And once you have faith and turn to Christ and follow his call, once you walk away from yourself and lay down your past and your sin... You can then do what a lot of us do around this church. You can theologize. You can think long and hard about the truths of Revelation, looking to understand it more clearly, looking for beautiful patterns in order. You can do that once you come to faith. But don't make the mistake of thinking that you can hold off having faith until you first have understood, because that won't ever happen. If you hear... The voice of Christ today, then I invite you to step out in faith and follow Him. You will begin to understand by and by. I promise you. Let us pray. Father God, how rich and deep you are, and how small of a glimmer we get of your total majesty and your holiness and your beauty and your love for us. But the truth is that we have seen you. In your mercy, you have shown us bits and pieces of yourself so that we are no longer without excuse, so that we are no longer with excuse, but are now without excuse. We thank you for the ways in which you've revealed yourself to us through the pages of Scripture. We thank you for your eternal word, which is as true today as the day that it was written. Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see the mysterious truth of who you are. 
A God who is beyond time, who steps into time. A maker of the whole universe who loves it so much that he's willing to lay down his own life. A God who was able to become a man and die on a cross for us. Lord, these are mysteries and yet they are true. We pray this day that you give us the faith to receive them and the longing to be with you. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right, I'm going to...